You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Literature Corner. What is the last book you read? Can you review it for us? Give us a call. I'll give you a minute to do so. 021-446-0567 in Cape Town and in Joburg, 011-883-0702. And while we're waiting for you to tell us uh, whether it's a thumbs up or thumbs down and why, when it comes to the last book you had read, uh, we've got in... The studio with us, journalist and bookworm. It says, yeah, it says bookworm now. That's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea von Veik is back with us in the studio. How's it, Andrea? Oh, well, thanks. How are you, you I'm very good. And thank you for this wonderful gift. A nice belated birthday present. I appreciate it. Pleasure. What have you been up to? Reading tons? Um, yes, I have been reading tons. Um, I have been really trying to get through that massive pile of books um you know and some of the older ones that have been there for like you know three years so yeah, yeah one another of the feeling dude i'm yeah. going through that wait at the moment and i've got another pile that's a very weird one and i know you're going through this now as well with the work that you've been doing over the last year or two interviewing um, authors um, more and more I also have like a long pile of um, author interviews that needs to be done. Yep. <laughs> and that itself comes with rereading some of those books as well, just to refresh your mind. I've got Indeed. one of those this evening that I'll tell listeners about at the end. Which book are we going to start with first? Okay, so this is one of the that was this was one of the ones from the older pile. I'm trying to think now when was this sent to me? 2015. Okay, okay. so it's it's slightly older. Um, Elika Boomer, The Shouting in the Dark. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her Let's name the correctly. Cover. There it's we go. Multitask, which means speak at the same time, darling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, she's a South African-born writer. She grew up in in Durban, but uh, she's of Dutch origin. And uh, Eusebius, you will like this. After she won the Rhodes Scholarship, she went to Oxford, and she's now a professor there in world literature, specializing in post-colonial literature. Okay, she did better than me. Yes, so she's she's quite well known. Now. You can't always love everything you read, and I tend to always bring books that I've absolutely loved. So I brought something that I found a bit more challenging. Okay. Um, I'm a bit of a sucker for picking books that are recommended by authors I respect. So this one um, on the cover has Jane Kutsia saying enthralling, and also Ben Okri, an intimate sense of history and very moving. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to read this. I'm not so sure I agree with Kutsia about the enthralling. <laughs> so let me tell you what it's about. It's about a young girl, Ella, who grows up in a small town in KZN, I think it's called Braemar, during the height of apartheid. She absolutely hates it there and she cannot wait to leave. Her father is this extremely angry man, a former Dutch Navy soldier. He fought during World War II and he's just very angry and disillusioned with the way that Holland treated those who um, uh, fought uh, in the war and he he spends his night out on the veranda raging to absolutely nobody shouting outside um, and that's actually what the title refers to the shouting in the dark mm. and Ella's mother grieves for her lost sister her dead sister who was also called Ella and who was the father's first wife so a very strange relationship there the one thing that brings light to the adolescent Ella's life is her very forbidden crush on Phineas, the family's teenage gardener. Um, and uh, years later, once her father's dead um, and she's left home, she discovers her father never bothered to register her birth. 
It's like she never existed to him. Um, and she, you know, she's become involved in the struggle. She hides people in her home. But once she's discovered she needs to get out of the country, and now she can't seek asylum in Holland. And she has to confront this relationship she had with her father or the lack of relationship. The fact that they just did not understand one another and that she really hated him. Um, the first third of the book felt very tedious to me. Um, I think mostly because it's extremely bleak in its descriptions of the characters and the setting and, you know, the, the time during which it took place. And I think it's probably intentional, but it just meant that I had to really convince myself to keep reading because of this, this bleakness. Mm. Um, and I think it actually in, in, in that sense, um, you know, uh, uh, Sort of relates to some of James Kutsia's writing as well. That that sort of very bleakness. Maybe that's why he liked it. Yes, probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's also quite disturbing. But as as the story progressed, it it did became a bit more entrancing. But it it left me feeling very desolate, and it took me a while to get through. Even though it's not a really big book, mm. I think it's more of a, a slow burn kind of book. And that relationship with the gardener you smoothed over, that sounds like a scandal. Well, basically, nothing ever happened. Okay. So she has this crush on, on the gardener, um, and she starts wondering about his life because he lives in a nearby township. And, you know, th- there is this chemistry between them, but it's completely unspoken. Mm. Um, and eventually when he decides he no longer wants to work there and she spe- suspects it's because he then becomes involved in the struggle, she's angry at him that nothing ever happened. But at the same time, obviously, it would have been very difficult to happen because her parents are super racist. You've also just given me a topic, by the way. We'll come back to the garden at some point on the show. Ross in Cape Town. Hello. Hello, hi. What's the last thing you read, Ross, or what would you like to give a comment I'm on? Actually, in, you see this? I'm in the middle of reading a book I picked up at a second-hand shop called The White Tribe of Africa by David Harrison. And it's actually written um, as a result of a TV series done by um, one of the leading, I forget the name now, leading um, uh, commentators on the BBC, and it actually, as a person myself, I was brought up as a, a, a product of a British public school. I realized I needed to learn a little bit more about history. And this really is about the Afrikaner nation and the subjugation of the Afrikaner nation mm. and then the, uh, the emergence of the National Party and, of course, the victory in the general election of 1948. But it particularly describes the humiliation and subjugation of the Africana people in uh, the end of the so-called Boer War in about 1902. Uh, can I read a little bit here? Very quickly, just a couple of paragraphs, then we okay. must move on. How great the emotion, wrote the official reporter. I saw lips quiver of men who had never trembled before a foe. I saw tears brimming in the eyes that had been dry when they had seen their dearest laid in the grave. The reason why I'm um, mentioning this book to you yes. is I just feel that in any situation in which a particular group of people are subjected to humiliation, whether it be the Treaty of Ferenachen or the Treaty of Versailles, it should be common reading for all students to realize 
but the result of that sort of humiliation can only be major trouble. And our own, I think our own history actually reinforces that. That's true, Ross. The flip side of it, the tragedy, of course, is that it's also proof that being subjugated doesn't guarantee that you will go on and show humanity towards others later in history. Kino Cummies on Cape Talk, weekday mornings, 6 to 9. That story about the four-year-old that was shot and killed, it's more than enough. Somebody needs to be held to account, whether it's politicians who should be doing better socioeconomic work. The criminal justice system needs to work more effectively, and the only way you're going to do that is if leadership is put in place that can drive all of that. Kino Cummings on Cape Talk, your number one news and talk station. 702 and Cape Talk, the Literature Corner. Clockwork, I usually think of Clockwork Orange, not Clockwork City. That's an interesting <laughs> title. Okay, so this book by Paul Crilly, Clockwork City. Um, just to give you a bit of background on him, he's a Scotsman, but he lives in Durban and he has been for a while with his family. He's uh, written some uh, well-known children's books and loads of scripts for TV, uh, but then he decided to turn to writing books for adults. And this one is the second book in the Delphic Division series. Now, the two books are some of the most fun I have ever had reading. Um, so it's about it's a detective series about a detective called Gideon Tao. He works for a secret division of the police called the Delphic. And Delphic deals with supernatural stuff. That's why it's secret. Um, and it draws from mythology from across Africa. So they fight everything from normal demons, if I can call them that, to the Tokolosh, to Eloke, which is a Congolese evil being, to Emere, which is apparently the African version of elves, but way meaner than the European counterparts. Um, <laughs> so uh, quite interesting in that way. He has a, a magic wand, but you better not call him Harry Potter. He's, his spirit guide is a drunkard dog, um, drunk a dog with a filthy mouth and a penchant for sherry. And while Gideon is fighting demon, demons and uncovering conspiracies, he's also looking for his daughter um, or the killer of his daughter. Uh, she was murdered three years previously. Now, the first book, Poison City, is set in Durban. And the second one, Clockwork City, is set mostly in London. Now, in London... Uh, the Fae or the fairies, they're engaged in this massive gang war like the mafia. And then there's this ancient horned god that wants to destroy the city and now they have to help save it. Now, both these books just drip with dry humor. I rarely laugh out loud while reading, but this is just sarcastic AF. Um, <laughs> it is witty. It is engaging. You've got all the sort of best parts of gritty crime fiction with this wonderful, wonderful anti-hero, um, as well as a very different kind of fantasy because it draws on African mythology. So it's not the Tolkien kinds of elves and, um, uh, dwarves and gnomes that you, that you find in, um, mm. other, uh, fantasy work. So uh, when I finished Clockwork City, I was so mad at Paul Crilly. I was so mad. I tweeted him and I told him so. Why were you mad? Because it ends with this epic cliffhanger and it is killing me. So um, this book was only released recently, so I'm going to have to wait quite some time for, for, the, next for the next one. And <laughs> the, the books are so good. They've been picked up to be made into a television series in the US. Really? Um, and I can totally see it being really great if they, they find the right cast and do the effects right. But yeah, so wow. it's doing really well. That's high praise. Carol in Santon. Hello. Hello. Hi. 
Yes, am I true to you? You are. You're on the literature corner. What book do you want to talk about? Wonderful. Good morning. I've just read the most wonderful book. It's called 104 Horses. It's Mandy. I can't really remember her surname, but I can really recommend this book where this couple took out 104 horses out of Zimbabwe when they were, you know, in those terrible troubles. And hopefully that's all over now for them. Hmm. Um, where the vets were taking over land in Zimbabwe. And these, this couple who were taking not only horses, but looking after all their other animals. It's a very sad book in many ways, but it's educational in that it makes you realize what happens when things go wrong in a country. And I can really, really recommend it. It's a young couple, and they took the horses to Mozambique. And anybody who wants who loves animals and who wants hmm. to read an inspiring book, I can really say that they must go out and get that one. That sounds gorgeous. Is it beautifully written as well? Beautifully and so real that you feel everything for them. I mean, you know, the, the angst of the whole thing and what they suffered losing their farms and losing their, their land that they'd worked in for years and years and the, the, the trauma that they they took to get these horses and not only that but the trouble that they had once they got to a different country and I don't want to blow it for, for anybody who wants to read the book so let's just read it a lot okay. of people have said to me no they don't want to read it because they don't want it to read about animals being you know in such a dire situation yeah. but really really interesting to know what happens when when people lose, you know, it's not just losing your land, it's losing your animals and your Absolutely, absolutely. And I can hear it. And it sounds like a beautiful read. And often our humanity comes through in our treatment of animals. So I like that way of um, trying to take the temperature of a country through the experiences of vulnerable animals who can't speak for themselves. That's a hundred, 104 Horses Autobiography by Mandy Ratzliff. Jeff, good morning to you. Hi, you CBS. Yes, which book do you want to proselytize about? Okay, right. Um, I'm reading a book called Elon Musk. Oh. And it's, ba- it's basically, um, it's, not a, it's a biography written about his life by a lady called Ashley Vance. Now, you know it, I'm an admirer of Elon Musk and what he's achieved, so I was very excited to start reading the book. Yes. And the first chapter focuses on um, his extremely tough upbringing in South Africa. And how that like, kind of formed his character, you know, going forward. Mm. Now, I got, to a cert- I got to a certain page in this book, page 39. Um, can I read the paragraph to you? Because yeah, the very paragraph. Cool. Yeah, go for it, yeah. So, talking about him and his cousin. The boys' most audacious exploits may have been their trips between Pretoria and Johannesburg. During the 1980s, South Africa could be a terribly violent place, and the 35-male train trip linking Pretoria to Joburg stood out as one of the world's most, sorry, stood out as one of their, their most formative experiences. What, what this book is saying is um, it's like partly factually incorrect. <laughs> I mean, it's like totally, it's, it's actually totally, it's totally incorrect because during that apartheid period, that train ride was like totally staked, number one, um, just due to the way apartheid operated. But, um, I'm getting the impression that Elon, the way that the way this book's written is that Elon Musk's character is actually inflated. 
that his upbringing has been inflated. I was about to say, Jeff, I've got my tongue firmly in my cheek, but I can't say anything because, to be fair, not least wearing my hat as a broadcaster, mm-hmm. I do not know the facts of his life, but I had secretly assumed hashtag privilege. <laughs> hashtag privilege. Hashtag, massive, hashtag <laughs> the most, the massive, massive privilege. Hashtag the biggest house in Pretoria. <laughs> hashtag everything. Eusebius, <laughs> um, I know you're very, you're very technical. Book called Elon Musk. Okay. And the page that I'm referring to yes. is page 39. That is wonderful. So where does this leave you? Is it a buy you recommend for amusement? No, no. It leaves me very disappointed because okay. I haven't even started reading page 40 because I don't know how true it's going to be yes. when it comes to stuff overseas. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Absolutely wonderful. I'm going to challenge Andrea the next time I get her to do reviews because Andrea is one of my favorite examples of someone, and I was saying this to Bungani Bingwa, who does what very few readers do because we're not all equally good readers, even when we can read grammatically correctly, and that is to read with appreciation. Um, And I'd love to know which books she has read that she thinks sucks. So maybe that will be uh, the next set of book reviews. But for today... For today, what is the this? That's a door stopper in front of you. Yes. Um, so this, I, I have to talk about this author because he's one of my two ultimate favorite authors. Um, Haruki Murakami. He is a Japanese writer. He writes in Japanese. His books are translated into English and I think like 25 other languages. And over the past sort of decade, he's just become insanely popular all over the world. Uh, Murakami is very media shy. He doesn't do interviews, but it's because he became, in 1987, he wrote this novel, Norwegian Wood. And the young people in Japan just absolutely identified with it because it was about the this, this student protests that happened um, a few decades previously. And um, he became this, yeah, rock star novelist. And he just really hated this newfound stardom. And so that's why he just, he doesn't do interviews. He doesn't really speak. But... Um, yeah, so as you can see, the book is enormous. It's 925 pages to be exact. Um, and it really is actually three books. They were initially published separately in 2009 and 2010. Uh, so it's like a trilogy and, and all three are in here. So that's why it's so thick. Hmm. Uh, the title of this book is 1Q84 and it is a play on the title of George Orwell's book, 1984. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Yes. Jeez, that took me long enough. Yes. So, uh, this Not book. Not much IQ. Yeah. This book is also set in 1984. Um, one thing to know about Murakami is that he kind of writes in two genres or traditions, if I can put it like that. The one is a sort of very realist literary tradition, and the other is in a fabulous tradition. So it's not quite fantasy, but it's this surrealist dreamscape uh, type of story. And this book is one of those dreamscape stories. And it's about two characters, Ayomami is a young woman who is also an assassin. She kills men who abuse women. Tengo is a young man who is a genius math teacher, but who's also an up-and-coming fiction writer. They both live separate lives in Tokyo, but they briefly knew each other as children, and that kind of has an effect on both of them much later in their lives. So it starts off with one day Ayomami is stuck on the highway in traffic and her cab driver tells her if she goes down this emergency escape, she'll still be able to make her meeting. But he gives her this very weird warning. She must remember there's only one reality as she goes down these stairs. And shortly after she's gone down the stairs, she realizes some things are a bit odd. Small changes like 
the police uniforms have changed. All of a sudden, there are two moons in the sky. Not everybody can see this. Most things are the same, but but not everything. And she calls this para- parallel reality 1Q84 with the Q standing basically hmm. for a question mark. And at the same time, Tengo is pulled into this strange ghostwriting project for this odd teenage girl. And as soon as that's done, strange things begin happening to him. And he also starts seeing these two moons. Now, I wouldn't exactly call it a dystopia, but for me, it's very much like a Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland type experience. You know, she goes down the rabbit hole. Ayamami goes down this emergency um, staircase. All of uh, Murakami's books are about self-discovery in one way or another. And one of the best things about his books is that it always has a musical leitmotif. Um, his knowledge of all genres of music is absolutely astonishing. He, After he finished college, he actually had a jazz bar in Tokyo for eight years before oh, he wow. started writing. So, um, you know, he loves classical music. He mm. loves Bob Dylan. He loves jazz. He Doors the Beatles. So, for example, that that book that made him famous, Norwegian Wood, gets its title from the Beatles song of the same name. In one Q eight four, the late motif is the Czech composer Leos Janáček's Symfonieta, which means Little Symphony, and it's so compelling the way he weaves it into the story. So, mm. I mean, the first thing I did was I went and found that you know on Apple Music, and I listened to the symphony while I was reading mm. it. It's just so beautiful. Um, I mean, despite the heftiness of this book, I got through it fairly quickly. I mean, okay, I started over the Easter weekend, so I had some time, but I finished it in about a week. So it's extremely compelling mm. um, you know even if his books are the sort of you know Salvador Dali you know weird things they're not written in very lofty language I mean Murakami just writes quite simply I, for a long time I found it very difficult to describe how I felt you know the, the kind of feeling that I get from his books so this is the seventh Sorry. novel that I've read and I finally found the word to describe how he writes initially I was like it feels detached but that's not quite the way he writes without judgment okay. so he writes his characters I mean he'll, mm. he'll he's very honest he reveals their flaws but he he creates them without judgment and I think that's part of the magic of, okay. of reading beautiful. him beautiful sounds stunning Titch very quickly if you've got one minute which book do you want to comment on Hello? Hi, which book do you want to comment on very quickly? Uh, uh, very quickly. So I got to read two books that I read when I was a lot younger. Uh, yes. Lord of the Flies by William Golding, as well as uh, The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Stunning. And the, re- and the reason I read them is because my daughter's taking them for school. Oh, wow. Um, so you can imagine she read through the book, se- the book separately, and then I read through them separately, and then we got to discuss them together. So you were rereading so them now through adult eyes. Yes, but now trying to compare it to how I used to see them with my younger eyes, and yes. then like you know getting to understand them through my daughter's eyes, which yes. are still like a lot younger than I was when I read the book, and it's actually amazing how allegorical both tales are, <laughs> and how you know with, with adult eyes you sit there and you think to yourself. Should the kids, do the kids actually know what they're reading, right? Um, <laughs> I the hear people. you. Yeah, because yeah, so, even the old man in the sea, which is beautifully written, but it's so minimal. Even if you're a clever kid with a high IQ, lots of that stuff will go over your head. I remember enjoying it as a kid, but thinking as a kid, like, what is this all about? Just like point? drifting off into the ocean and then what? Exactly. So, 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 you know, I, I would almost want to say to, 
to, to people out there to say, if there are some books that you read when you were young, especially yes. those set books, I because agree. I think guys that let, let people read them, 100%. Um, knew they were, they were a lot more chunky than, than you could ever make them to be at that age. But I agree. If you've got, still got your high school notes, and then you read the book now, and you read those notes, and you try and understand it, it, it opens up a whole new world. The only thing you can't do, Titch, unfortunately, is to go and rewrite the exam. No, oh man, I so wish I could. You're so right. You can't, right? But you can at least try to absolutely, absolutely. You know, to, to yeah. get a different view. So absolutely. Um, Thank you for that, and kudos to you as a parent for reading with your child as well. I think that's also what's so special about your story, Andrea. Thank you for your love of books, and uh, we'll do it again in a month or so. Yeah.